Let's see here. Okay, I was planning to give you guys a chalk talk today. I did find some old slides I just posted on there just in case you missed, or you guys are gonna be here, but for those that miss, at least I'll have some sort of reference. Uh, there's some additional information on these slides, like how smooth muscle contracts, which we probably won't cover today, um, but that information is there and available to you in case you're curious how smooth muscle contracts. Okay. So, anybody remember what we talked about last week? Some of you guys were pretty excited. I know some of you missed. <laughs> Erica was very excited. Erica, do you remember what we talked about last week? But it's been like a whole weekend. Yeah, we started on metabolism, right? So we said that, yeah, there's different skeletal muscles. There's type 1, there's type 2A, and there's type 2B or type 2C, type 2X, let's see. And in terms of endurance, these are the highest, these are kind of intermediate, and these are low. And some of the explanation for that has to do with some other things which we're going to get more into today, which is the mitochondria and capillary density. When it comes to these parameters, essentially they're the same. So they're high in type 1s, intermediate in the type 2As, and low in the type 2Xs. So it seems to be that endurance is kind of associated with mitochondrial content and capillary density. Also, there's a color difference, right? These are more dark red, red, and white. There's Kylie. And that has to do with myoglobin and... Hey, Kylie. Okay. Yes. So we definitely talked about that. And then today we're going to get more into what's actually going on in the mitochondria. How is it utilizing energy, glucose, fats, and even amino acids. Okay. What else did we talk about? Yes, Sandy. What's that? Sorry. That's right, the sliding filament theory. Or whatever we want to call it, right? They have a bunch of different names. Right? So we were focusing on striated muscle and how striated muscle has sarcomeres. 
that consist of thin and thick filaments and how they tend to contract that's about as good as I could do so these are the what I drew so far is the thin filaments and then of course there's the thick filaments and so as and then of course there's nebulin here or sorry titan titan nebulin is stabilizing the actin so let's see if we can label these so this is thin filaments This is thick filaments. We talked about how when a muscle contracts, right, the thin filaments slide over, the thick filaments are like this, they're pulling the thin, thin filaments in, right? Um, which shortens the sarcomere, right? And uh, yeah, we kind of went over that mechanism in some detail, right? So anybody remember in a nutshell how it works? We can start at the very beginning here. Remember this guy? This is your somatic motor neuron. Hey, Jeff. You're good. So we talked about somatic motor neurons, how those are being output from your brain or whatever, trying to tell you to move, right? And then, um, Ultimately, it's going to synapse on a muscle at the neuromuscular junction. All right. So this synapse is actually going to be innervating the muscle. And on the muscular side is where the receptors are. Okay. And if it's a somatic motor neuron, what is the neurotransmitter that is releasing? Sandy. That's right, acetylcholine. So it's releasing acetylcholine in these vesicles. That's going into the synaptic cleft. And what are the receptors on the muscle side? 
Nicotinic, see repetition works. Nicotinic uh, acetylcholine receptors, right? So those nicotinic acetylcholine receptors bind to acetylcholine, right? So remember that the synapse, the, the vesicle release is calcium dependent, and then what's flowing into the muscle is sodium. So then essentially what it's doing is it's propagating the action potential, right? So the action potential started here at the axon hillock, right? Travel down the motor neuron until it reaches acetylcholine. That, that interacts with these receptors and then they propagate the signal along the sarcomblema. And then ultimately down the T-tubules, okay? Into the muscle. Well, you know, technically we're dealing with an individual. The TGBs can be pretty big. Okay, so that process, right? Did you, were you guys able to draw that? Okay, I'll leave that. So this is down the uh, action potential. Propagates along the sarcolemma and down the T tubules. Okay. And sarcolemma is just the cell membrane. Right? Along the cell membrane, and then, so here we go. So this, here's an image of that, right? Here's the neuron. Here's the cell plate. Okay, so acetylcholine is released. The nicotinic acetylcholine receptors receive the acetylcholine. Then they propagate the action potential along the sarcolemma and then down the T-tubules. I'm going to sneeze again. Sorry. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> okay. So once this, the action potential propagates down the T tubules, then what happens? That's right. So you have some channels slash receptors here called DHP. They are calcium channels. But in skeletal muscle, we don't need their calcium channel function because they're actually mechanically, mechanically connected to the ryanine, ryanine receptors, RYR, if you guys can see the, 
it's way down there. RYR stands for ryanidine receptors, which are on the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So inside of your muscle, you have this sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is full of calcium. And holding, and the, the, the gate to letting those, that calcium rush out is these ryanidine receptors. RYR, ryanidine receptors. Okay, so the DHP channels are mechanically connected to the ryanidine receptors. So, when the DHP channels become activated, they trigger a conformational change in the ryanidine receptors, which opens the ryanidine receptors. So the action potential propagates through, down the T-tubules, activates DHP channels slash receptors, which then open ryanidine receptors channels, tricalcium channels, and calcium flows out. So calcium starts to rush out. Of the sarcoplasmic reticulum. What's that? Yes, yes. It's released, released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Where then calcium binds troponin. Alright, so back to our sarcomere. Okay. Well, where can I put this where you guys can see? I'll put it over here. So remember that. Well, how should I draw this? Remember that the thin filaments, I know they draw it a little better, so I'll try to do it like that. If this is acting, there's also nebulin there, and there's also tropomyosin. I'll try to draw it like them. And then you have troponin. So this is the thin filament. So what happens is calcium rushes out and calcium binds to troponin. So calcium binds troponin. You guys see that? Then troponin is connected to tropomyosin. Okay, so this induces a conformational change
So that now, I don't know, are you guys going to be able to see this? Here, I'll do it this way. So now you've got your actin, but now the troponin-tropomyosin complex has moved off. We'll just say it's like this. And so what that has done Here's the tropomyosin. Right? And here's the actin. Alright, so what that has done now, calcium binds troponin. The troponin, troponin is connected to tropomyosin. The troponin tropomyosin complex moves. When that moves, then that exposes an actin binding site from the myosin head. Does that make sense? So the action potential propagates down, activates these DHP channels, in the case of skeletal muscle, even though they're a calcium channel, in the case of skeletal muscle, they don't need calcium channel activity because they're mechanically connected. They're connected to the right adenine receptors, which open, and then calcium rushes out. Calcium binds troponin. The troponin-tropomyosin complex moves to expose an actin binding site so the myosin head can bind. Then it could do the... What are we... So once the myosin heads bind to the thin filaments, then it can pull them in. Alright, and then we did the power stroke. Alright, this process. So the, the most important thing I want you guys to remember is that when the myosin head is bound, In order to be released, okay, so in order to be released, right, in order for that to happen, you need ATP. And so this ends up being ATP bound. Then it goes through a process of rebinding, hydrolyzing the ATP, doing the movement, removing it. But then, in order for it to be released again, it needs to bind ATP. Okay? Which is why, if you die, one of the explanations for rigor mortis. Right? Because if you don't have any ATP, everything will be bound, the muscle will be stiff. 
It's all good. Okay, yeah. So we did all that last time. It's a little bit of review. Um, what else did we talk about? Are you talking about this stuff at all? Creatine kinase? A little bit? A little bit? That's kind of like what we're getting into today, but... We talked about the different energy pathways. Time. All right. In the beginning, I was watching track and field, by the way, over the weekend. I think I, I think it's like already previously done, but there's like a big track and field national championships. Anybody else watch that? Not too many people just turn on the TV and watch track and field. Right? No. <laughs> I, I don't know. I find it. But, uh, yeah. So, um, so we saw the full spectrum, right? We saw sprinters, saw hurdles. We saw, uh, the, the longest run I saw was the mile. But, um, yeah, so a lot of different, ener different energy pathways being utilized there, right? So the first one, the first uh, 10 seconds or whatever, is this ATP slash in, in muscle, right? In muscle, first 10 seconds what's being utilized is this ATP CP pathway, okay? Which involves phosphocreatine and creatine kinase, right? So this was the idea that we know that you need ATP to release the myosin head and then it gets burned during the process of pulling, pulling the muscle thin filaments in, right? So we know we need ATP. So one way we can get ATP after it's hydrolyzed one of the ways we can get it is from phosphocreatine right which is a C with the phosphate and it donates the phosphate to ADP to reform ATP and then phosphocreatine becomes creatine, which can then become converted back into phosphocreatine via creatine, I'll just put CK, via creatine kinase. Correct. C is for, yeah, phosphocreatine. And then creatine kinase, I could write that out. Right here, let's do it this way. So as it donates its phosphate, it just becomes creatine. Right? So then to become phosphocreatine again, it needs a phosphate, right? Inorganic phosphate. 
But then there's an enzyme that has to do that. And the enzyme is creatine kinase. Or CK. I believe. Or no? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, what else? Okay, so that's, that's a very short amount of time. It works for a little while. If you take a muscle outside of the body, like a, f I think they did this with frogs. So they took frogs and they just fatigued the muscle. They just, you know, uh, they stimulated the muscle until the muscle completely fatigued. And what they found was completely depleted was phosphocreatine levels were gone. Right? All the phosphocreatine was gone. Outside of the body. Outside of the body, you can get, there's some sugar there, but you're going to burn that up probably relatively quickly as well. And you're not getting any delivery. Right? There's no vascularity. There's no uh, capillaries to deliver you more oxygen and nutrients. So you just have to work with what you got. So um, it's a little bit different. When it's connected to your body, you've got a constant supply, hopefully coming to the muscle, which is going to help you out. Okay, so that's one pathway. Okay, so then the next pathway, right? What's the next pathway here? As soon as you start running out of ATP from your creatine phosphate storage, and this is a dynamic thing, right? So imagine you can start using your ATP CP. And, uh, and by the way, also, these guys, right, are going to probably prefer this pathway and the next one we're going to mention. Um, so what is the next, how about this, what is the next energy source? Besides uh, creatine phosphate and ATP, Glucose, right? So your next energy store or energy source is glucose, right? So glycolysis, and really, glycolysis is fundamental to everything. Anything, everything involving sugar, right? So all like the the most ancient organisms okay, that are utilizing sugar as a source of energy are doing glycolysis, right? Glycolysis does not have to be done in mitochondria, right? So you don't need mitochondria to do glycolysis, right? And so these muscles are particularly glycolytic. Glycolytic. Meaning that they really like, they really like these pathways, okay? Um, and so today we should probably get into glycolysis. The good news is this is not metabolic biochemistry class. So you don't have to know all the steps of glycolysis. You just have to know the products in, that are made from it, okay? Essentially what glycolysis is, 
is the conversion of glucose into 2-pyruvate. And glucose has six carbons, and pyruvates each have three carbons, so you get two of them. So you're basically splitting glucose. Okay, so glucose has six, and you get three, and you get two of them. Makes sense, right? So same amount of carbons, but you're splitting glucose. And it turns out it's actually a pretty complicated process. A lot of intermediate steps, which I'll show you over here. This is the overall, but well, here's glycolysis. Well, here's a picture of glycolysis anyway. I don't know how clear that is. It's actually not the best. Let's see if I have a better one. Here. On the red is glycolysis, and the blue is gluconeogenesis, which is the opposite. Okay, so these are all the this, this metabolic steps that are actually taking place to finally get your... How do you get... There you go. I can't see the pyruvate. This thing's in the way. Do we, as animals, perform liquid hemogenesis often? Or? Yeah, so um, primarily in the liver and also in the kidneys. And we're about to talk about that. So... What happens here, because one of the problems with gluconeogenesis is it actually takes more energy to do it than it, the energy that you get from glycolysis. So let's talk about that real quick. So when you convert glucose into pyruvate, you actually have to invest some ATP, okay? So you invest four ATP, or sorry, you invest two ATP. What you, uh, what you get out of it is 4 ATP. So you acquire 4 ATP. So your net gain is 2. Your net gain is 2 ATP. Also, you get something else out of this. Okay, for every molecule of glucose, you also get two NADHs. Say so that this happens twice. So you also gain two NADHs out of this process. So you get two NADH, two ATP, and two pyruvate. That's essentially glycolysis. Okay, does that make sense? The things I circled are the things you actually get. Okay, so you get this per molecule of glucose. Now, that's not that much energy. 2 ATP, not that much energy, right? But it's something. And for a lot of organisms, they make this work, right? So, and then, 
And you know, you're burning glucose, right? So you're using glucose as an energy source. And when you do it, you get some of this stuff. Now we should talk real quick about NAD plus and NADH. I want to show you guys a picture of NAD plus and NADH. Does anyone know what NAD plus stands for? Or NADH? We always talk about it. This is what it is. It's a dinucleotide. Nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It's a big molecule. Okay? And the only difference between NADH and NAD plus is just a hydrogen. Right? You guys all see that? Isn't that funny? It's huge. It's way it's bigger than glucose. But it turns out that this conversion is really important in energetics. It's gonna power it powers our bodies. Okay, so we should talk about it a little bit, okay? So what is it? Well, it's what we're describing here is redox, which is oxidation and reduction. And what that is describing is the movement of electrons. Which turns out to be very important in powering our body. So not only does our body utilize ATP as an energy source, Another thing it utilizes is this redox, which involves the gain and loss of oxygens, or sorry, of, uh, uh, of electrons. Okay? Has anyone learned about oxid, ox, ox, yeah? So what, uh, what do you know about oxidation and reduction, or how do you remember? Kylie. That's right. And how do you remember that? Um, I just think, Yeah, that's one way to do it. You're just like, oh, it's just like the opposite of what it should be, right? Because a reduction is a gain. Or. Yeah, I like that one. I like Leo the Lion says Gur. So you got two, you got two options. That all also that can help you. One is, Leo, the lion says ger and in that case it's loss of electrons is oxidation gain of electrons is reduction or you can also use oil ring which is oxidation is loss reduction is gain whatever helps you remember but this happens a lot. This happens a lot in uh, in metabolics. And what it's describing is the gain and loss of electrons between NADH and NAD plus, and how. So then, which way is which? Which one's a reduction and which one's an oxidation? Is 
That's right. Or no. Other way around. Because this is a plus. So when it goes this way, it gains electrons. So this is reduced. And this is oxidated. Or oxidized. Oxidated. <laughs> Okay, so you're going to see that a lot when we talk about metabolism, and it starts with glycolysis. You see, so not only did we gain some ATP, which we can use as energy, we also gained some electrons, which we'll use as energy. So these are both energy sources. It's like, uh, you know, I, don't, I, I guess gasoline. It's all octane, right? But you could say like. This is like regular, and this is like supreme, right? They're both kind of energy sources. And then, of course, you've got what you, your carbon that you, you started with glucose and you've broken that down into two pyruvates, which you will then break down further, okay? So, okay, so, this, so that's happened so far. So you can do this for a while, right? You can break down sugar, and you get some energy out of that. You haven't really utilized this yet, but you can utilize the ATP right, right away for this, right? If you need to. So that will get the muscles going, right? And you could power yourself that way. Now, of course, you also have this pyruvate. Um, so one way these, this fuel source could be used right away is in the production of lactic acid. So let's talk about that for a second. Go back to our and Joe. This gets to your question about gluconeogenesis. Okay, so. We said in glycolysis, glucose is converted to pyruvate. You gain 2 ATP. We'll just say plus 2 ATP, plus 2 NADH. When you make these two pyruvate. Now, pyruvate can go in different directions. Pyruvate can be utilized aerobically or anaerobically. If it's anaerobic, that's kind of what we're referring to here. This is kind of anaerobic glycolysis. Okay? So if it goes this way, it's anaerobic. If it goes this way, it's aerobic. So this needs oxygen. This does not need oxygen. That's what that means, right? Aerobic means with oxygen. Just think like air, aerobic. Air is oxygen, right? We breathe oxygen from the air. That's for our aerobic respiration. 
anaerobic does not need oxygen. And remember, some muscles in your body prefer that, like the type 2X, also red blood cells and endothelial cells, and tumors. Prefer, they're very glycolytic, they're very anaerobic. They don't need oxygen, really. Okay? So then how does that work? Well, what happens is pyruvate, and you guys all know about lactic acid, right? You know that if you work out, you generate lactic acid, right? That's because your glycolytic muscles are utilizing glucose to pyruvate, and then they're converting that into lactate or lactic acid. It's the same thing. Lactate is lactic acid. Okay? Now, when, when, in order to do that, in order to convert pyruvate into lactate, you need to utilize this energy that you generated. So you actually burn that. So that NADH actually gets burned. in order to make lactate. Okay, so if you go in this direction, you end up burning these. And you're only left with the ATP as your... Right, because look, it gets burned here, right? If you go that direction. So... In that case, you did use it, the movement of electrons to fuel the conversion of pyruvate into lactate. Okay? And that's lactic acid. Why on earth would we want to do that? What's that? That's what I don't Well, one reason is maybe you need these NAD pluses for something. Maybe to power more conversion into NADH. Um... Another reason is you've got all the mechanisms in your body to secrete and remove lactate, right? Which is what we're about to get to here with the Cori cycle, right? So pyruvate can be converted back into glucose via gluconeogenesis, but pyruvate typically doesn't get secreted out. What gets secreted is lactate. So because pyruvate has multiple fates, pyruvate can also go this way, which we'll talk about next. Pyruvate could also go to the mitochondria. If it's aerobic, then pyruvate would go to the mitochondria. Okay, but in this case, it's not going to the mitochondria. It's going this way. So when it gets converted to lactate, the muscle knows and has the transporters to remove lactate from the muscle. Because it's an acid, it you know, changes the pH, it's doing weird things inside the muscle. The muscle is already knows to remove lactate, get rid of it from the muscle as quickly as possible. So it allows for a way to distinguish between anaerobic and aerobic byproducts. Yeah? Is that a reasonable explanation? I mean, we're, we weren't there, right? We don't know how the body evolved, but this is this kind of makes some sense. Because pyruvate has multiple fates, so you don't want to just secrete pyruvate out. But if pyruvate does get converted to lactate, which means your muscle is either very glycolytic and prefers it, 
or you're literally out of oxygen. Imagine you're like cycling up a hill and your aerobic muscles are like working as hard as they can, burning all the oxygen and they're just straight out. So they start actually producing lactic acid, right? In fact, we see that, I don't have the picture here. We see that with the lactate threshold, right? Even when you're doing aerobic exercise, even when you're doing aerobic exercise, which, we, which will be here on the endurance scale, at some point you might run out of oxygen. Right? And if, because the muscles are, I mean, it's controversial to make that statement, but some people would say that the, the oxygen content of a working muscle will go approach zero. Okay? And if that's the case, all right? If that's the case, that might explain why, even as you're doing your super endurance running, if you do it at a high intensity, you can actually cause your lactate levels in your blood to rise substantially. And this actually could contribute to your fatigue. And we'll talk about that in a second. Okay, so for whatever reason though, in all, in all situations you may, you know, and this is not like, you know, imagine this. Imagine glucose gets converted, pyruvate goes to lactic acid. Then it could go, get secreted into the blood, which you would measure here. This is in the blood, right? So let's go back to our slide. That's what happens here. Lactate gets secreted into the blood. Okay. I didn't leave very much room here, but it's okay. We'll just say, I'll do this. Two times lactate. Okay, lactate gets secreted out into the blood. We'll do red. Okay. Okay, lactate gets secreted into the blood, and that's what you measure. You can measure lactate levels in the blood. Then it gets transported to the liver. When you're dealing with glucose, it's primarily the liver. Okay, and the liver is going to convert lactate back into glucose. But that costs 6 ATP. Okay? This is gluconeogenesis, liver gluconeogenesis. Okay? This is gluconeogenesis. Gluco means sugar, neo means new, genesis, creation of, right? Alright, so. You can take the lactate that's secreted out of your muscle and turn it back into sugar, which can then be secreted back out and be internalized by the muscle to do this again if you want. Okay, and that's what's known as the Cori cycle. Well, see, think, think about it this way. Let's say you're charging a, a hill on a bike. So you're using your aerobic respiration. And we're going to talk, in aerobic respiration, you're getting, let's say you get 38 ATP. 
per molecule of glucose. Right? So if you go this way, you're getting tons of energy per molecule of glucose, right? But at some point you might run out of oxygen because you need the oxygen. So in the meantime, while you are not having or not using oxygen, you can go this way. You can generate some energy. Okay. And granted, you're gonna, you're gonna, I mean, if you follow the fate of one of these, let's say glucose goes this way. Let's say glucose goes this way, this way. So then you lost four ATP, but then now you have glucose again, which can now go this way and you can generate 38. Right? So it works out for you. If you were just going like this constantly, it wouldn't make any sense. Right? But if you can do this in the meantime, I guess, I mean, it's because the liver is a different place than the muscle, right? This energy is going to be used by the, in the liver. Right? Whereas this is in the muscle. You're still getting something in the muscle. Sure, you can keep running for a little bit longer. Well, you breathe really hard and try to get some muscle, get some oxygen back in here. Or, you know, there's, there's muscles that might be constantly recycling between this, right? The glycolytic ones. So they'll utilize this, but then you're getting a lot more energy out of your aerobic muscles. And we're going to get into that. We'll talk about the mitochondria. But right now we're just talking about this core. And then, and let, so remember here, and to finish this thought, Kylie, with the mitochondria, that's going to be like your final one, right? This is going to be aerobic respiration, which it, it involves mitochondria. Okay. Over time, that's going to be primarily the pathway being utilized in your muscles because everything else will fatigue or be constantly, you know, accumulating too much lactic acid to be really. Um, and then with the glycolysis, as long as there's oxygen there, it's much more efficient for them to go this way and get the 38 versus getting the two. Right. So, but then let me show you even this guy. Did we talk about this guy yet? We did, right? Okay. Anybody, did I offer extra credit to anybody that could figure out? Okay, good. So you understand that this guy has no lactate threshold. So his lactate levels are never going up in the blood. Right? And that is somehow contributing to his ability to never fatigue. He never fatigues. So lactic acid must have something to do with fatigue or, or utilization of it. Although this is also a controversial thing. But this guy has got something going on with his lactate threshold. Or you just never measure it accumulating in the blood. I remember I showed you guys that curve. I think I showed you guys. Yeah, that's right. I showed you the slide last time. With the, so now hopefully I, that kind of fits and makes more sense. Okay, what else should I tell you guys? 
All right, so we got to talk about aerobic respiration. How much time do we have? Four minutes to nine. Okay, we're doing all right. Okay, so now we should talk about the other way. Okay, so forget all this, this Cori cycle stuff. Let's say it doesn't go that way. And like we said, this is a dynamic thing, right? It could, pyruvate could, is going both ways, could be going both ways. Okay, so then the other thing we have is if pyruvate actually goes this way, goes to the mitochondria, okay? So let's enlarge that a little bit. And we'll make this the mitochondrial membrane. Mitochondria. Okay. Okay. All right. So in this case, pyruvate, okay, gets transported into the mitochondria. Everything takes place inside of the mitochondria. Okay. Hey, I get to sit down. Sweet. All right. So the next thing it's going to undergo is something called pyruvate. Oxidation. Then it will undergo the Krebs slash ETS or ETC electron transport chain. Then it will undergo, or no, psh, what am I saying? Krebs slash citric acid, sorry. Citric acid cycle. You got to watch me, I'm a little bit dyslexic. And then the ETS or the ETC electron transport chain or electron transport system, or as I like to call it, OXFOS. Okay. So what happens in each of these steps? Well, like what's the point, right? Pyruvate, remember, is a three carbon molecule. So during pyruvate oxidation, what actually gets oxidized is the carbon gets oxidized. So carbon is lost and is oxidized to form CO2, leaving you with two carbons, which is an acetate group. However, also what happens is that A coenzyme A group is attached. I think, did I show you the picture of acetyl-CoA? Or no? I think I, I will. But a CoA group is attached, so that ends up on here. Okay, and so this molecule is collectively known as acetyl-CoA. Whoops. acetyl Okay. And then also something that you should remember is that every time in this system when you lose a carbon at CO2, you gain an, you gain an NADH. Okay. So what also happens here is you gain
which is a reduction, right? And that is your major source of fuel that you gain out of this reaction, is an NADH. Every time you lose a carbon as CO2, you gain an NADH. It's just the way that the reaction works. It's because it's an oxidation reduction. The CO2 gets oxidized, and the NAD plus gets reduced to form NADH. Okay? That's pyruvate oxidation. Now remember that this happens twice per molecule of glucose. Okay? And you're left with acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA, you will find, is a very, very important molecule. Okay, because it is the original metabolite for the next step, the Krebs cycle. But it can also be derived from other things besides sugar. For example, fat. Fat, where should I put this? You guys see my marker right here? Kind of. If I put fat right here, can you see that? Yeah? Okay. Fat can also be broken down to form acetyl-CoA. In fact, remember how, you know, when we talked about triglycerides, right? Triglycerides. Remember these long fatty acid tails? Those things can be broken down two at a time and converted into acetyl-CoA. Oh, I'll show you what that, why that works and what that looks like. So let me show you what acetyl-CoA looks like. Here is acetyl-CoA. That is a huge molecule, right? The whole thing is the CoA, which is derived, I believe, from vitamin B. So all of this is the CoA group. This little thing in blue here, that's the acetyl group. So you'll notice that in the very first step of the Krebs cycle, um, acetyl-CoA loses its CoA and there was a four-carbon four molecule called oxaloacetate becomes, with this two-carbon molecule, becomes a six-carbon molecule called citrate. So the very first thing that happens, so it gained the, the CoA group here and then it loses it right away. So for some forsaken reason, you have this huge molecule that gets attached and then lost. I'll probably draw this somewhere else. But I'll just show you the first step there. Okay, so the first step you take oxaloacetate, which is a four carbon molecule. It, it combines these four carbons with the two carbons from acetyl-CoA to form a six carbon molecule called citrate. Citrate is citric acid. 
that's the tangy flavor in the lemons and tangerines that you have. That's citric, citric acid. That is formed, and that's why they call this, they call it the citric acid cycle. Because you make citric acid and then you do a cycle. Okay, and the enzyme that does this, the enzyme that takes oxaloacetate and acetyl-CoA to form citrate is called citrate synthase, which is an important enzyme for some stuff. Citrate, citrate synthase. So, uh, and there's going to be a lot more steps here. So for now, I'll just put this thing like this. There's going to be a lot of stuff that you get out of this. And I'll, I'll just say that well, from this, you got 2-NADH, two 2-acetyl-CoA, two and 2-CO2. Two from this, you're going to get 6-NADH, 2-ATP or GTP, depending on what book you read. And two, four, sorry, four CO2. And two FADH2. You guys all see that? That's what you're going to get out of it. So you see a lot of that energy you're getting out of it is NADH. FADH2 is the same kind of thing. I should have put them next to each other. Those are all reduced things. So a lot of reduction going on in the Krebs cycle. But also a little bit of ATP, like 2 ATP. That's not very much, actually, for, for the whole Krebs cycle, which is a lot of steps as well. So you can see, though, these things are starting to build up, right? You got 2 NADH here. You got a bunch of NADH here. This also works, FADH2. A lot of reductions going on. And then also, uh, some CO2 loss. Right? Some CO2 is lost. So after all, that's what we're describing, is every time you take a breath in, and you take a breath out, right, you're, you're breathing in oxygen, you're expelling CO2. So that's the CO2 that you're expelling. That's how it's being generated is during this process. Okay? All of it is involving mitochondria. Because all of the CO2 is being generated by the mitochondria. Right? Outside of the mitochondria, there's no CO2 being generated, and you don't need oxygen either. We haven't got to why you need oxygen yet, but it's in the electron transport system. Okay, so finally, I'll say this, in the electron transport system, okay, what happens is, I'll put it up here. What happens is you take all these metabolites you've generated and you have some complexes that are in the membrane. We talked about ATP synthase, right? Joe, we're talking about ATP. That's the key here, is you have an enzyme called ATP synthase. That sits in the inner membrane. 
Because mitochondria have two membranes. They have an outer membrane and an inner membrane. The inner membrane is wiggly. Why do you guys think the me inner membrane is wiggly? Surface area, Surface area right? How's it going, Marissa? You know all this stuff already? No? Okay. It's like, we'll only do this once. But yeah, there's a lot of mechanistic stuff in physiology. So, but what, this, this comes back, this point takes us back to the very beginning when we were talking about membranes. Okay? So, you have these different complexes, and what they do is they all burn... NADH or FADH2 they all burn their electron movement and all those electrons go into this system and what they do is the electrons go through the electrons get donated so these uh, electrons so I'll say electron donors are these, right? Those electrons go through the system, get transported around, and finally what they find, the, la the final electron acceptor is oxygen. Okay, technically it's one half of an oxygen gas plus 2H is equal to water. Does that make sense? You guys see that back there? Yeah? So there's the oxygen, finally, right? So the final electron acceptor is oxygen. So maybe turn to your neighbor and explain to them why oxygen is the last final electron acceptor. Why would oxygen be? Why does it go all through this to finally interact with oxygen? Talk to your neighbor about it. Anybody know? Anybody know why oxygen is the final electron acceptor? It goes back to our polarity thing when we were talking about polarity. Oh, it's it can so because it, it says one half of O2, which means it's very charged. Imagine one oxygen on its own, not bound to another oxygen. That's an oxygen radical. It's actually an oxygen radical that is attracting the electrons. And it turns out that that oxygen radical is extremely electronegative. It's so electronegative, it's actually drawing the electrons to it. It's like the electron magnet. It's like, come to me, electrons. And the electrons are like, yes, we will. So we will leave NADH 
and FADH2 to go and finally find the oxygen. So that oxygen radical is drawing, which is, means that you need oxygen radicals in your mitochondria to carry out respiration, which is also dangerous because oxygen radicals can also do terrible things to your DNA. Um, you know, that's free rad it's a free radical. <laughs> okay? But when the electrons get it, it no longer becomes a free it, it's no longer a free radical, it becomes water. Okay? So it's the electronegativity of oxygen that draws the electrons to it. That process powers the pumps. You know how pumps cost energy, right? Normally it takes ATP, but it's just the movement of electrons that powers these pumps. So there's an active transport of hydrogen ions into the inner membrane space as a result of this movement of electrons towards oxygen. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when it moves to the ATP synthesis, is it grabbing an electron that's way? Because right now it's H plus, it's a hydrogen atom with no electron, right? Yes. And then so Well but it's not so the the movement of electrons, the electrons are going to oxygen. But the movement of electrons are powering these pumps. And the pumps are pumping this proton across. Yeah. Does that make sense, kind of? So the point is here is that remember active transport. Remember how like things require energy to be pumped against the gradient. Normally that requires something like ATP, right? But in this case, it's the ox. It's the redox. Okay. So the movement of electrons is what is powering these pumps. The pump here, right? It's, it's not the best picture, right? But what's happening is H plus is getting pumped into this inner membrane space because mitochondria have two membranes. So mitochondria have two membranes. They have an inner membrane and an inner membrane and outer membrane. Okay, so the inner membrane has all these complexes. Okay. And what happens is the, the NADH gets donated or the FADH2 gets don donates their electrons. Okay, and those electrons are, so these are donated, right? So this is oxid ox oxidation. Okay, and those electrons move across these complexes. And as they do so, that powers the complexes to pump H pluses into this inner membrane space. Okay. Inner intermembrane space. And then ultimately, those electrons, I should use a better color here. So 
So those movement of electrons, okay, finally, what gets reduced, so the final oxygen uh, electron acceptor is oxygen. Okay, so the electron donors are the things that you generated during the glycolysis and Krebs cycle, right? So you did all this with glucose, you generated NADH, NADH, FADH2, all that is donated, the electrons are donated to, the, to, the, to this complex, these complexes, and the movement of the electrons through the complexes is what powers the proton gradient. So all of this, all of this biochemical reactions was just to generate a gradient. Right? Remember the gradient? That's also important for how your nerves fire. Right? You generate the gradient. These gradients are really important for, for physiology. Right? In this case, we're talking about how we make energy. It's through the creation of a gradient. Right? Through some active transport. This time we could use the movement of electrons to power it. And ultimately, there's an enzyme that's going to harvest that gradient to make all the ATP. And that's the next step. So, while oxygen is the final electron acceptor, there is also an enzyme here with a propeller-like region on it. It's called ATP synthase. It's also a great name, right? ATP synthase. And what it's going to do is it's going to harvest the potential energy from this gradient. Right? So all these H pluses, well, you know, it opens the, remember the dam analogy? What we've done again is we've created a gradient. So if it's our dam, Okay, just imagine there's lots of H pluses on this side. There's no H pluses on that side. And there's an enzyme right here that's going to open up with this propeller. And as it forms this hole, as the hydrogens come gushing out, it's going to be churning and it's just going to make lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of ATP out of it. As this happens. Okay, so that's what's going to happen here. You've got lots of H pluses on the inside. We didn't have to burn ATP to make it happen because we moved electrons. We used sugar or we used fat. And then... Finally, it's utilized by this ATP synthase, which generates approximately 34 ATP per molecule of glucose. So if you add up the 34 plus the 2 from the Krebs cycle, plus the 2 from glycolysis, right? And that's 38. So approximately 38 ATP per molecule glucose if you undergo aerobic respiration. 
which requires glycolysis, but then it goes that way, right? It goes this way. Okay? Here, let's finish this so it makes more sense. Right? So that's what happens. These numbers, though, when you take tests, they make you memorize these numbers, but the truth is it totally depends on how healthy your mitochondria are. Right? If you have diseased mitochondria, you're not going to make 34 ATP per molecule glucose. Right? Or, you know, if you have super mitochondria, maybe they'll make even more. Because remember, the inside's wiggly. So you're maximizing as much complexes as you can into your mitochondria. If you change the amount of wiggles, that could affect your total mitochondria output as well. Alright, I showed you guys what a real mitochondria looks like, right? By EM. Did you guys see that? Let's see, cardiac. Here is a here's a cardiac tissue. Right? This is not the best fixation, but here's a muscle fiber. This is a sarcomere. That is a mitochondria. That's a mitochondria. That's a mitochondria. If you zoom really high in on these things, you can see the criste. I don't know if you can see them there. I have a picture in one of my lectures. I like to show the picture I took. <laughs> Let's see. This one, right? See all those Christe? So it depends. It's hard to get a nice image of them for because of fixation techniques and stuff, but you can imagine different mitochondria are going to have different amount of surface area on the inside. Side, there may be bigger, small, and mitochondria are also constantly fusing and fissioning, and they do all sorts of strange things. But Overall, their general health will contribute to um, how many ATP they're actually putting out. Okay, so is that pretty much... You guys still awake? Bridget's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you realize it's 8 in the morning. <laughs> uh, okay, so but this is the... This is what the whole point of this is. Right, so... You got your ATP CP pathway, you've got your glycolysis, and then you've got your actually it's these two things, right? So so these muscles are gonna prefer, right, to be more ATP CP glycolysis, Cori cycle, right? And then well it's these guys, these are intermediate, so they'll have more mitochondria. Mitochondria are carrying out this function, right, which contributes to the overall endurance. Okay? Now, this is muscle. Most, remember, most cells in your body, other cells in your body, I know most of your body is muscle, right? But a lot of other cells in your body are primarily just doing this, aerobic respiration all the time. The only tissues in your body that prefer, well, prefer to be glycolytic are 
Your type 2X muscle, anybody remember the other ones? Uh, besides muscle. So with the muscle, yeah, type 2A will do it a little bit, right? They're, they're kind of intermediate. But then what other tissues in your body don't like oxygen? I'll give you a hint. Usually they're the things that are carrying oxygen, so they're not going to consume it while they're carrying it. What carries your oxygen around? Your blood cells. Yeah, and your blood vessels. So your blood cells are carrying oxygen around. Turns out they're pretty glycolytic, anaerobic. And they can, they, I mean, honestly, they don't even have a nucleus. They spit out their nucleus, and you know their lifespan isn't the longest. But they are, they can metabolically, they're primarily anaerobic. And also, your blood vessels, or technically your endothelial cells, are very anaerobic. And the 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 oxygen has to get through them to get delivered to your tissues. Right? It has to diffuse past the endothelial cells. So that kind of makes sense too. That they wouldn't be taking it all. Right? And then, so then, uh, another thing we should talk about real quick is some of these other things. So, how about fat? So here's the deal with fat. So we said that fat... Fat can be converted into acetyl-CoA, right? That process is known as beta-oxidation. So that's what you see here on this slide. Technically, a triglyceride, okay? These things will get cleaved off, and glycerol can go to the liver to undergo gluconeogenesis. Okay, we talked about gluconeogenesis, like the Cori cycle and stuff. Liver, kidneys can, under, can take on gluconeogenesis. The glycerol group will go for, it can be converted to DHAP, which is one of the steps of glycolysis. But it can be further, so that could, technically it could go either way, but it can be converted back into glucose. Whereas the fatty acids, like we said, are going to get broken down. And what happens, you can see here. Wait, you can see here. Okay, the fatty acids actually get converted to acyl-CoA, and they bind a molecule called carnitine, if you've heard of carnitine. Carnitine shuttles it into the mitochondria. So this fatty acids get converted to acyl-CoA, they bind carnitine, carnitine shuttles them into the mitochondria. Once they get into the mitochondria, they can be utilized. Ultimately, they get converted to this, acetyl-CoA, okay, inside of the mitochondria. Uh, let's see, what else? Ah, why should you care? Here's, here's a major reason why you should care. So the heart actually prefers fatty acid oxidation over uh, the glycolytic stuff we talked about. So the sugar, all this glycolysis stuff, that's primarily an energy source for your muscle. The heart actually prefers fatty acid oxidation. Okay. And if you have a problem with your fatty acid oxidation or your fatty acid metabolism, your heart can have major problems like heart failure, heart disease. Uh, I think I have that written down somewhere. Acyl-CoA, this one right here, acyl-CoA, which is an intermediate. See, fatty acids can be converted. This is a nice slide, actually. 
see here it shows you glucose to pyruvate into the mito, but then here's another way. Fatty acids to acyl-CoA binds carnitine, gets into the mitochondria. If you have an issue with acyl-CoA production, you can develop heart failure. So your heart needs fat. It likes fat as an energy source, particularly. And you know, the heart's pretty important, right? So that's some stuff to keep in mind. One more thing I'll show you is this. Uh, you can also utilize amino acids from proteins okay, to undergo gluconeogenesis, things like this, right? So you know that gluconeogenesis uh, can be, you, you, I mean, it's, you can convert lactate into uh, glucose. You can convert glycerol from the fatty acid. You can also utilize different amino acids like alanine or glutamate. This is uh, the alanine shuttle right here. Shows you how you can potentially convert pyruvate into alanine, shuttle it over to the liver, convert that back into glucose. So there's alternative forms of energy. We, we really emphasize the breakdown of sugar, but actually for your heart, the breakdown of fat is very important. And ultimately, fatty acid oxidation is slower, but you get more energy out of it. You know, because look at, a, look at a, these fatty acids. Each two carbon one of these can become an acetyl-CoA. With one molecule of glucose, you get two acetyl-CoA. Right? So you can potentially get a lot of energy out of fatty acids via fatty acid oxidation, which is this one, this way. So your heart likes that. More so than skeletal muscle. All right, uh, here, I got something for you. We'll play this and then we'll take a break. Which one should I give you? I've been holding out on the cahoots. Because we, I think I have two different ones for you. One on glycolysis and one on muscle. Oops, library. Here's glycolysis. Do I have a muscle one? Here's a metabolism. How long is the glycolysis? 10 questions? All right, let's do that one. Oh, yeah, this is the one with the wrap. Okay, perfect.
I strike in a match. The energy you put in makes the fire catch. From glycolysis investments to ATPs, which act as activation energy. Enzymes make phosphates from ATPs. Jam and lime glucose for your Fructose 1,6 the phosphate on the table, two phosphates. It's highly unstable, moving us to the second phase, the cleaving of fructose 6 phosphate. <laughs>